Well, good morning. It's so good to have you here this morning. This Sunday is Trinity Sunday in the church calendar. So that means that all over this world, Catholics and Protestants, you need to know that right now, or a few hours before us, or a few hours after us, depending on the time frame, that Christians all over this world are worshiping God focused on the fact that God is a trinity. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, a, a brilliant man who in many ways was a great gift to this world, he, he said that all the religions of this world are fundamentally equal. And, and he liked to say, say it this way. He said, one may drink out of the same great rivers with others, but one need not use the same cup. The soul of religion is one, but it is encased in a multitude of forms. Now this view, Gandhi's view, today we often call this pluralism. And it's shared by many people here in the West. This idea, this belief, really, that all the different religions, when we really get below the surface, they don't contradict each other. That deep down in their basements, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam or Confucianism, that deep in their basements, at their foundational levels, they are not contradictory. They really complement each other. They're just different perspectives on the same greater reality, different paths up the same mountain. Now, like I said, here in the West, we call this religious pluralism. On the one hand, religious pluralism, I think, is driven by a deep desire for peace and unity. I mean, we have to be honest about this, that religion in the world today is a source of an enormous amount of conflict. And in history, we've got to be honest that organized religion, which we are participating in right now, is in history, it's been the source of a tremendous amount of oppression and pain and suffering. And pluralism, I think, it comes from this innate knowledge that there is something that brings us all together. There is something that holds everything and everyone together. And in pluralism, I I think it's commendable because it says that something is God. But we've got to ask the question, which God? Which God is the source of unity? And that brings us to the three passages of Scripture that we've heard this morning. Isaiah chapter 6, John chapter 3, and Romans chapter 8. You see, all three of these passages make a claim about who God is that is not compatible with other religions. John, Isaiah chapter 6, this passage, Dennis, thanks for reading to us. Isaiah chapter 6. In it, there's this incredible phrase. He read it. We also sang it this morning, this incredible phrase. The whole earth is full of God's glory. Now, that's an arrogant and exclusive claim. Because that was a person in a particular religion that said, this whole earth is filled with the glory of my God. That there is only one God. There is only one true universal Lord. And His glory fills this earth. Now in a day and age when this was written where people believed that gods were territorial. 
that there was a God in Egypt. And when you, when you moved into another na- country, there was a God there. To say the whole earth is full of my God's glory, this was an exclusive, radical, put up your dukes and fight kind of claim. John chapter 3. This God, this same God that Isaiah is claiming is the one and only true God. In John chapter 3, verse 6, look what it says. You must be born of the Spirit in order to enter this God, the only true God, in order to enter His kingdom. And then in verse 15 and 16, you must believe in the Son that was sent by the Father in order to enter the kingdom. Now, we find this same similar idea going on in Romans, the passage that Aaron. Thank you. The passage that Aaron read to us. We have met before, haven't we? <laughs> Romans chapter 8 verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, so there's spirit, that we are children of God, that's the Father. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. So both in the John passage and in the Romans passage, we see that there is this one God, but somehow this one God is known as Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and, and that we can slide from talking about this God in terms of Father, talking about this God in terms of Son, talking about this God in terms of Spirit. And that any one of these, your relationship with these, any of these three kind of Things that are being named determines if you're in or you're out. Now, notice how all of this fits together because this is foundational for the Christian religion, for authentic Christianity. What you're seeing in these verses is that there is only one God, and this God is a trinity. That He is one being who exists eternally in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not three gods. That's polytheism. There's not a pantheon of Christian gods. There is one God. Christianity is staunchly monotheistic. It insists there is only one God. And and, and this God is not one God who at various times becomes the Father and then later becomes the Son and then later becomes... He's not one God who slips into different modes of being... He's eternally Father, Son, and Spirit. Eternally a triune God. Now, there's deep mystery here. I mean, this is way beyond Stephen Hawking's and his incredible ability with astrophysics or calculus or string theory or chaos theory. This is way beyond the greatest minds and the greatest theories and the greatest knowledge that we have today. When we start talking about God the Trinity, we're brushing up against ultimate reality. And it's far more complex than a black hole. But this is reality, that there is one God, and He is Father, Son, and Spirit, and all three mutually permeate one another so completely that one is always in the other. There's um, a very old word that helps us to envision the Trinity. This word, uh, get ready for it, it's pretty weird. And it goes back a long way. It's not even English, it's Greek. It's perichoresis. Now, 
big fancy word, but you know the two bits of it that make it, peri, right? Peri uh, is a Greek root that means around. So a periscope is a scope that can spin around, right? Peri. Um, peripatetic, I walked around, right? Choresis, uh, we, get, we use the word choresis for our word. Does anybody know? Choreography, it means to dance. And all the way back in the, very, in the fourth century, actually, when they began to use this word to try to talk about what is the Trinity, what they're saying is that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are constantly dancing around one another. Centering, everyone is centering his life upon the needs and the desires and the joys. Needs wouldn't be the right word. Upon the other. This idea that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are constantly moving around the other, centering upon the other, entering into the other, uh, delighting and adoring, none insisting that the others delight. So it's this dance, right? I'm going to serve you. No, I'm serving you. No, I, I mean, that's the picture on the front of our worship guide. It's the Trinity. Each with each head is inclined to a different one in this incredible circle, this incredible dance, this dynamic pulsating Dance of joy and love. The early church called it perichoresis, the divine dance. What they're doing there, and think about how this both captures the individuality. There really is a father, there really is a son, there really is a spirit. And at the same time, each is permeating the other so that there's this incredible unity. And so there's this incredible distinct individuality, but at the same time, this irretrievable oneness and unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all bound up in one another so that that one is not one without the other two. In other words, God is not God apart from the way in which the Father and the Son and the Spirit give to and receive from each other what they essentially are. Now, obviously, this is perplexing. It overloads our mental circuits. Some of you have already checked off into la-la land. But but it's so hard for us to grasp, but it's still true, you know, that the triune nature of God is right at the heart of Christianity. And, And what I want to do for the rest of the message is just talk about three ways that the that God is the Trinity has real practical impact on our lives. First of all, I want to talk about what does it mean what does it show us about the nature of God to say that God is a Trinity? Because this gives a different God than other ways of thinking about God do. Secondly I want to talk about what does God as Trinity mean for me as a human And for my relationships with other people. And then thirdly, coming back to this quote by Gandhi, what does God as Trinity teach us about how we should relate to other religions in this world? First of all, the Trinity shows us that the essence of God is love. Now, stay with me here. This is really significant. By nature, love is relational. In other words, love requires A subject and an object. There is no love in abstract. You can't sit by yourself in love. You have to love something, right? Like, I love... That's a a nonsensical statement. I love crawfish. Now, that's a beautiful statement, right? I love bald heads, right? Now, that's that's obvious. That's logical. 
Love is interactive and interpersonal. It requires at least two, two or more. It, love only exists in the giving and the receiving. So in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. It's actually not such a great translation. A better translation is love acts patiently. So apart from the action, love doesn't exist. It only exists in the action, in the giving, in the receiving. It's something one person does to or for another person. In other words, a solitary being cannot love. And this is an irreconcilable difference between Christianity and Islam. This makes Christianity and Islam, in their, in their fundamental conceptions of reality, very different. The essence of the reason God is love is because God is Trinity. It would make no sense for God to be love if, if before time existed there was no other object. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? It Before time and space and matter even existed, when God called us into being, he called us into being out of a love that already existed. Why? Because he needed something? No. God has no hunger that needs to be filled. He created us to share in the joy of the dance that already existed. It's the same reason a husband and wife create a child, to share in the love that already Exists Because if a husband and wife create a child in order to create love between them, those marriages often end in divorce. It's kind of like when your child gets married and you invite as many friends as you can to the wedding. Why? Because you want everyone to share in the love and joy of that moment. So you break the bank. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity is the reason that Christianity alone, out of all the religions in this world, gives love primacy. Now this leads us to the next implication. If God is triune, God is a trinity, and we are created in the image of that triune God, like it says on the second page of the Bible, then we are created for relationships. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says... So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Created in God's image. Which God? Who is God? He's the triune God. To be human is to be created for community. Now, there are several life-shaping implications of this. First of all, Since we are created in God's image, and that means we are created for community, when you are tempted to run from community into isolation, you are being tempted away from true humanity. You're being tempted away from what it really... So when you get clobbered and you get hurt and every cell in your body wants to run and cocoon and hide yourself away, you need to know that that is a temptation away from what it means to be human. Now, I'm not talking about the need, the, the real genuine need that we all have for alone time. I'm not talking about the need to be still and be quiet and be by yourself. I'm talking about the desire that many of us have, not all of us, some of us, it's the opposite. The desire that many people have for real isolation. And and you can do this, you know, without even leaving a crowd, right? 
You can put up all kinds of barriers that's, that, that just cocoons you into your own world. So that at the end of the day, there is no real connection that is occurring between you and the people around you. Some people cocoon themselves with busyness. Some people cocoon themselves with lying. Some, I mean, there's all sorts of sneaky little manipulative ways that we do this. But what I'm trying to say is this is a movement away from what it means to be fully human. Some of us, the way we pull away from full humanity is that we turn everyone around us into a means to our own end. We interact with people, but only so that they can advance our agenda. And this is just another form of the same thing. But when you open your heart to God and God gives you his spirit, one of the things that the spirit does is he provokes us and empowers us to live according to our true nature, to become truly human. So when we open ourselves to God's spirit, you know what happens? you will begin to discover a strange power to cross some boundaries that you could never cross before. Two in particular. The boundary between you and God. First, listen again to Jesus' words in John chapter 3, verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Paul says a very similar thing in the passage out of Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into the fear, back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. This very intimate word. The Trainum family, all called, the children call Mike Papa. And sometimes when I hear him calling him Papa, it sounds very intimate. See, this is this next word. The Spirit comes into our life and empowers us to refer to God in an intimate way. Abba. That That was the Greek. That was their word for an intimate relationship. Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, in both of these passages, we see that the Spirit opens us up to God and leads us across a boundary into this intimate, personal relationship with God. That's one boundary. A second boundary that that the Spirit gives us the power to cross is the boundary between us, between you, between me, and other people. One of the strange and surprising works of the Spirit is that God empowers us to enter into previously... Impossible relationships. And as we do, as we open ourselves to God's spirit at work within us, we can learn to treat other people with real respect. Not using them as a means to our own end. Think about how the Trinity, God is Trinity. Think about how this teaches us to love. See, the word love, it's like this um, cliche today. It's really become a cipher, a word that anybody uses and they fill it up with their own meaning. But what I'm trying to do is to say the only legitimate way to define love is to root it in the Trinity. Now, what does the Trinity tell us about what genuine love is? Not this whatever stuff is, it goes along and, you know, 
in our culture today? What, what is genuine love? Well, coming out of the Trinity, it shows me that genuine love is when I serve your interest. Remember the Trinity in terms of perichoresis. That's love. This dynamic orbiting around one another. So for me to say to my wife, I love you. It's saying, I will orbit my life around you. I will center on your interest and your desires. So often when the word love is used today, it means the exact opposite. But I love you means I will center around your desires and your needs. That's love. So in loving you, I make your interest my interest. Instead of me making my interest the basis of our relationship. I mean, all of us have been around people that as soon as the conversation slips off of anything they're interested in or their agenda, they lose interest in you. Have you ever been around this person that as soon as the subject slips away from what they want to talk about, they glaze over and you no longer exist? You're no longer in the room? That's not love. That's what I started out the service by talking about Brother Chester and Leonard. They both had this incredible ability These people that God brought into our lives and their spouses, that when we came into their lives, they completely would center on us. And so we would try to center on them. And you know what that created? A dance. That's the Trinity. That's genuine love. You see, genuine Trinitarian love leads me out of myself. This kind of love, the love that we see in the Trinity and that the Spirit of God puts in our heart, this kind of love, it is the end of deception. Because why is there any need for deception to protect myself if, I am in, if you are accepting me and welcoming me? There's no suspicion because there's no more manipulation. This love does not manipulate. It does not use people. So, if the fear of pain and suffering, if the fear of being vulnerable... Satan is such a sneaky little dude, isn't he? He clobbers us in these deep hurts we experience in life where we are betrayed. And then he uses that hurt to keep us out of being fully human. See, if if the fear of suffering, if the fear of being hurt and vulnerability, if this drives you away from intimacy with others, you need to know that if you go down that path, you will dash yourself on the rocks of ultimate reality. You are trying to live in an unnatural way. You might as well try to live as an animal. You're living against the grain of the universe, so it cannot possibly work. You will not find happiness and satisfaction. C.S. Lewis said, right, he he was right on the money. He said, there are only two places free from the pain and suffering of relationships. Heaven and hell. This world was not created by a solitary, singular, isolated, higher power. It was created by the triune God, who is essentially love, and therefore that is the grain of the universe. And so you and I were made by and in the image of this self-giving God, and therefore we were made to be giving And other directed and self-centeredness destroys marriages and father and son relationships 
and neighborhoods and communities and it will destroy and if self-centeredness enters into a community it will devolve why because the triune god who is ultimate reality put love at the center of the universe that's one thing we learn about ourselves and what it means to be human from the nature of god from god as trinity now i want to wrap all of this up by going back to therefore what does it say about how i treat not you but people who are fundamentally different from me about this issue, about who God is. So what what does the Trinity, how does it help us understand the way we need to relate to people of other religions? Well, first of all, and this is important, the Trinity shows us something I haven't touched on yet, that God values difference. Just like the Father and the Son and the Spirit are personally distinct, He created a world that is filled with individuals and distinct creations. Even of all His trees, He can never bring Himself to make two trees twice in the same way, right? Everyone is going to be different. Look around this universe and you see how much God values diversity and uniqueness. This creation is filled with different species and different personalities, and sometimes all in the same body, right? On this day, there's a Sting song about, Sting sings about his, his girl. He says, she can be all four seasons in one day. <laughs> she can be cold as winter. <laughs> she can be warm as summer. You know, and some of us, in the space of a few hours, we cycle through A to Z in the number of relations. This, 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 is, this is the way God made this world. The Trinity is the enemy of homogeneity. It really is. And ironically, this is the problem with pluralism. The problem with pluralism is it doesn't value diversity enough. It discards the unique and distinctive claims of each religion. It looks at all of them and says they're all the same. Well, that's like me looking at Rick and... and Martine, I'm forgetting names today, and saying, you know, they're the same. Well, it, okay, on one level, but at the end of the day, there's this U2 song about the incredible, mysterious gap between a man and a woman. There are moments where I'm standing there looking at my wife and thinking, that's the Grand Canyon between us. I have no idea what in the world can I ever possibly know this person. This is the problem with pluralism. Despite all of its claims to valuing diversity, it doesn't. You see, we are seeing this morning that Christianity does not present a vague, generic God that can be slotted into any religion. The God of Christianity is not an impersonal cosmic force. The God of Christianity is distinct and personal. He's a trinity. So when it is argued that Christianity is ultimately... Basically, foundationally, just like Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or Confucianism or what have you, that is not the real Christianity. And this is the problem with pluralism. It's not honest. It's not an honest view of reality. It does not really and honestly compare different religions. It compares parodies and caricatures of different religions. The only way that I can say all you women are the same is if I caricature you. And it's arrogant. And it's just as arrogant to claim in the name of humility 
that we're all just the same. But where does this leave us? Well, if God values diversity and there are irreconcilable differences between the world religions, where does this leave us? Well, remember, all of the, most of the sermon was wrapped up with what it means to relate to other people. Right? What does, it, what does the Trinity teach me about relating to others? I must relate to others in love. That's essential. So our goal when it comes to other religions must be, number one, to hold firmly and honestly to our convictions. And number two, to have an honest and kind and respectful conversation. And when we do this, when we honestly recognize differences, it is not the same as picking a fight. Actually, I think it's the only way to take somebody seriously. When I stop listening to you and I start making you into a stereotype, that's not loving. But when I honestly recognize that my wife is different from me and I allow her the dignity of being different, that's respect. So you see, when we look at people in other religions, there are two easy mistakes. On the one hand, if all we see are our differences and all we focus on are our differences, it's going to result in exclusion, hard lines and war. On the other hand, if I look at a Hindu or a Muslim or a Jew or a Buddhist and all I see is what we have in common, then it's a distortion. And that's the two traps of our interaction with other religion, exclusivity on one hand or distortion on the other hand. That's the problem with pluralism. It tells me that I'm arrogant for claiming Christ is the only way, but it's making an equally arrogant claim. So let's just pick the arrogance that's true. Let's just pick the one that's true. Only when we see both undeniable differences and undeniable similarities... Only then can we really be able to honor both others and ourselves. This is one way that God the Trinity teaches me how to relate to other religions. Listen to what Michael Green, he's a longtime pastor in Oxford, England. Listen to how he explains this. He says, no faith, no religion would last very long If it did not contain much that was true. Other religions are a preparation for the gospel. And Christ comes not so much to destroy those religions as to fulfill them. A convert from another religion to Christianity will not feel that he has lost his background. But that he has discovered that to which at its best his or her religion always pointed. Thus Michael Green says... This is certainly the attitude I have found among friends who converted to Christ from Hinduism, Islam, and Buddhism. They are profoundly grateful for what they have learned in their culture and their religion. But they are thrilled beyond words to have discovered a God who has stooped to their condition in coming as the man of Nazareth and who has rescued them from guilt and alienation By his cross and resurrection. You see in Michael Green's little paragraph. To me that's a Trinitarian relationship. 
He refuses to recognize the difference. He refuses to back off the conviction that Christ is the clue. He's the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So who is God? He's the Trinity. He's the one creator God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And when you accept Him into your life, you are born all over again. And the Spirit will penetrate you and link you with Jesus and bring you into a dance of love. Listen again to Paul's words in Romans eight fourteen: For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So here's my question for you. All of you, the adults, the children, the teenagers, the college students. Have you accepted this God, the only true God? Have you accepted his claims on your life? Have you owned up to the fact? Do you believe that he is your creator and he alone can be your savior? You see, it's possible to have bought into Christianity on a cultural level and not truly be converted to this God. Many times people turn to Christianity for social reasons, but their hearts are not genuinely transformed by the power of God. To convert to Christ, you must step out of your own self-centeredness. You must step out of your fear. You must trust Christ. When Jesus died for you, he was inviting you into the dance of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. He invites you in. In the words of C.S. Lewis, he invites you to touch a rhythm, not only of all creation, but of all being. He is inviting you to begin to center everything in your life on the one who is moving towards you. You thought you were moving toward this building this morning, but the greater reality is that God was moving toward you the whole time you were journeying to this room. And to be a Christian is to open your heart to the one who is moving towards you. He's encircling you in his infinite and self-giving love. And if you respond to him and trust in him and repent of your own self-centeredness and all your sins, then your relationships with God and with others can begin to heal. Have you done this? If you haven't, there are plenty of people in this room who would love to talk with you about what it means. Please, engage someone in a discussion about this. Come and talk to me. Or ask, if any of the things I talk about are too confusing, ask Ernie. He will solve all of the confusion. He has all of the answers. Or you can email me or lots of people. Let's pray.